Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. You'll go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. We're going to continue our series this morning called Epiphany, uh, week two of it. And uh, just going to look at, at John, uh, a different John this morning in the book of John. So we'll get there here in, in just a second. Let me give us um, just an update as far as some things coming up in the life of our church, things that we have going on. If you're new to the church or you've, maybe you've been around for a while but haven't actually joined our church, I want to invite you to Sharon 101, uh, January 24th and 31st. It'll happen uh, during the 945 gathering. Um, just a way for us to tell you more about us I think churches are like a Baskin Robbins. There's 31 flavors of church and um, how we do church, the methods of church, they're different depending on the church. Uh, But what should be true about Bible-believing, gospel-centered churches is that they proclaim the finished work of Jesus over every situation. So we do that, but maybe you you haven't tasted our flavor yet. What, What... how are we structured? What do we fully believe? How do you get plugged in? I want to invite you to be a part of that. Um, afterwards, you can meet Jeff over here in the gathering place. He'll get you set up um, for that. Tonight, we have a prayer and worship night. Um, the Lord had just placed it on the hearts of our elders a number of months ago to do another one of these, and we felt like last Sunday night would have been the best night to do it, but things change, and God works, and God moves, and God moved that night uh, to this week, and now it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense why tonight we'd want to gather and to pray and to worship. And so I want to invite you to that tonight, uh, five o'clock. Tonight, I know there's um, playoff football on, but it's fake playoffs because of COVID and stuff. And there's extra teams in and more wild cards. And it's, it's all watered down. You can wait till next week. Uh, it doesn't matter. And so uh, next week, um, you can watch football. Tonight, we're going to come here. We're going to gather uh, to worship and to pray. The church, I think we pray when we gather. We've been really guilty of not gathering just to pray. And so we're going to do that. Um, tonight. I want to encourage you in that. Um, I'll be more direct about that through the message. Uh, and then finally, it's not, we don't have a slide for this, but I want you to save the date. February 12th and 13th, we're doing a marriage conference, February 12th and 13th. Um, if, you've, if you've noticed over the past year or so, just uh, the way that the world has shifted and moved and changed, and it's particularly through 2020, it has really amped up um, issues within marriages. And so we, we want to preach the gospel to that. So we've got um, some friends coming in, a couple coming in to lead us through that weekend. Just mark the date. We'll give you more information um, as we have it, February 12th and 13th. So those of you men looking for a Valentine's idea for your wives, I would just say this would be good um, for you. Also makes you look really godly that you were like, hey, we could do dinner, but why don't we go learn together? She's like, oh, you're such a man of God. You would rather do that. You're like, yes, and it's free. So yes, I would rather um, do that. We're continuing our series called Epiphanies, the revealing of Jesus as the Messiah through the book of John. We're going to study John um, over the, the bulk of the first half of, of this year. I read this quote this past week, and um, I think it sums up kind of my passion for digging into this, why we want to do this. It's um, Vadi Bakum, who's a pastor, uh, professor, and just brilliant thinker and, and pastor, just loves the Lord, loves the church. And he says this, the modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads, passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. The modern church, I'll read it again, is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. 
I, I want us to be a passionate people. I want us to be a people full of zeal for the Lord, but I wanna make sure our zeal is placed in the truth of Jesus. Otherwise, um, we find ourselves um, dying on mountains that were never meant to be died on. We find ourselves pushing agendas that were never be meant to be pushed through the word of God. So I, I don't want us to be marked as a modern church with people full of passion but not knowing Jesus. So over the next few weeks, we're gonna study um, Jesus through the lens of the gospel uh, of John. John is, um, he was an apostle, one of the 12 apostles who followed Jesus. In the beginning of the New Testament, so the last half of the Bible, starts with what's called the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. Syn, S-Y-N, meaning similar or alike. Optic, meaning perspective or vision. They have a similar vision of Jesus, similar perspective. So a lot of the accounts and their stories are similar. They flow very similarly, use a lot of the same language. And then you've got John, who's a bit of an outlier. Um, John's book is written a bit differently. John, one theologian said his perspective is one who literally laid his head on the chest of Jesus and heard the heartbeat of God. So his is gonna be much more biographical, much more VH1 behind the music if you're of my generation and a pop-up video. This is gonna be more of that. We're gonna get some more um, just substance behind the accounts of Jesus. But uh, he's different in that it's, it's a very simple gospel. He doesn't use a whole lot of words. 600 Greek words are used throughout this 21-chapter book, which 600 words is comparable to a seventh-grade boy's vocabulary. The difference is that John is intentional with the words that he uses. Uh, John chooses words that have great meaning to them. Um, I love seventh. I love you guys, uh, but you don't choose a lot of words that have great meaning to them. You make up words. And so, um, but John, so it's accessible to those of us, those of you this morning who you're like, I don't know where to begin. What, I, I, I think I like Jesus. I want to know more about it. I, I'm really captivated. I would say read the book of John. And also for those of you who have said, no, I've been in church for a long time. I've memorized Leviticus in the Hebrew. I would say, read the book of John. Uh, read the book of John. There's so much depth and complexity that we miss at first glance. Keep on reading it. Keep on reading. So we're gonna study the book of John um, this morning. John is, he's direct in why he wrote his book. He says this in John chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. And they're not written in this book. So each of the gospel writers has a perspective and they choose stories based on that perspective. Verse 31, but these are written. These signs, these things that I've chosen, they're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's saying, listen, I'm not writing a, um, I'm not writing a history book. I'm not writing a documentary. I'm writing this for the very reason that you might know who Jesus is. That's why I'm writing. So that's good for us to know. So he's not gonna pull any punches. We looked last week where um, John kind of tells us who Jesus is in some figurative kind of language. So this morning, for all purposes this morning, think about the book of John as a movie. And the movie has begun. <clears throat> um, you've seen kind of words come up on the screen or you've seen things happening. You've seen a number of different scenes and You've been told who Jesus is, but more in like creative language. He is the word. And so what we learned was he was there at the beginning. He's at the beginning of time. He wasn't created. He, he is fully God, but he's also separate from God. We've learned that he is the light and that the light shines in the darkness and nothing can overcome it. So picture like creative things happening. And then now we're going to transition into the first time we see Jesus on the screen. 
But we don't hear Jesus talk. We don't hear Jesus' perspective. We don't hear his words. We're seeing Jesus through the eyes of a man named John that is affectionately called John the Baptist. The apostle John wrote the book of John. And then John the baptizer, John the Baptist is the one who has this perspective. So everything's been built to this in the movie screen. You've seen everything happening. You're wondering who this is. And then Jesus just makes his way subtly on the screen, but he's doing it through the testimony of somebody else. So John chapter one, let's begin in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist, John the baptizer. Uh, The book of Matthew describes some things about John the Baptist, that he lived in the wilderness Uh, He kind of kept to himself, was a recluse. He was covered in camel's hair. That was his fashion choice, was camel hair. He ate um, locusts covered in honey because he lived in the wilderness and didn't have much to eat. So he's pretty much just like every man you've ever met in Ola is pretty much who he is. Um, Wakes up early on Sundays and spends, or Saturdays and spends the day in a deer stand, cheers on the bulldogs. This is, this, he's just, he's a, uh, he's a wilderness kind of man. He's Bear Grylls, just uh, not cleanly shaven. Uh, but in, in that way, he's also, he's away from society. He doesn't have the kind of the same social norms that a lot of us do or a lot of them would have done. So conversations are much more stark. Um, they're just much more upfront. He's not hiding anything. This is John the baptizer. He's also a fir- probably a first cousin, maybe a second cousin of Jesus. Uh, we read in Luke that uh, Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist, but while she was still in the womb, Mary came and met Elizabeth And John the Baptist left in his womb knowing that Jesus was there, the Messiah had come. There's an anointing on this man. So we read now, this this is the testimony of John the baptizer. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So I want you to pay attention to characters uh, throughout this, this account. It's gonna be important for us as we get to a key point, but he, John mentions the Jews, So he's going to reference Jews. He doesn't mean the Jewish people. He's referring to like a higher order of the Jews, those who have risen to some kind of a national, kind of a political power or maybe a religious power. Um, But over time, they've grown corrupt. When he refers to the Jews, this isn't a just like a black and white term. This is a little bit derogatory. This carries some weight to it. The Jews sent priests and Levites. So now we're going to meet priests and Levites. I'll just... Say it to you this way, um, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. So you got Levites. Levites came from the tribe of Levi. Um, They were the ones kind of anointed to begin the priesthood. The priestly system in the temple would have been Levites. And so they're very very aware of their heritage and they're they're proud to be a Levite. There are certain ways they dress, certain ways they cut their hair, don't cut their hair. They let everybody know they are part of the tribe of Levi. They are Levites. This is who they are. They're proud of their heritage, proud of their history. From the Levites come a group of people called priests, and the role of the priest was to run the day-to-day operations of the temple. They were the ones who uh, were the ones who committed the sacrifices. They were the ones who um, uh, preached. Some of them actually led led worship in the temple. This is who, who the priests are. They are proud of their heritage, but they're also proud of their tradition. Levites and priests were staunch about where they came from and what they do. Now, John calls them the Jews here in verse 19. Later in verse 24, he's going to say, hey, it was actually the Pharisees. So uh, the Pharisees 
were not in the priesthood. They were on the outside of that. They had denounced priesthood. Like the priests could be Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were priests. And Pharisees then began to take over. They took a little bit more of a uh, nationalistic political bent to them. They were, again, staunch about their history, staunch about how they were raised, staunch about uh, Israel, and they had a bit more nationalistic bent to them. So you've got Pharisees, and you've got Levites, and you've got priests, okay? So they come to him, and they want to know, hey, who are you? We've heard of you, John the Baptizer, but who actually are you? Pharisees, Levites, and priests would have known the prophecy of the Messiah coming. They would have been able to put some pieces together. Maybe they had even heard some things about the baptizer. They'd heard that he checks a lot of boxes about what this Messiah would have been like. He, he stays to himself. He's not really one of them. He's, he's also undermining some of the tradition of the temple system. He's doing things that they may not approve of. They just don't quite seem to make sense. And so the Pharisees, right, more nationalistic, more political, say, hey, you, you uh, priests and Levites, go check this out. Pharisees have no authority over them technically, except for the fact that they have commanded authority. And so they send the priests and the Levites. And they ask John, who are you? Verse 20, John the Baptist, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, well, I am not the Christ, which just has to frustrate you because the question is not who are you not. The question is who are you? And John the Baptist's first response is, well, I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. So we can just stop that right now. Like if you're coming because you think I'm him, I'm certainly not him. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. Verse 21, well, they asked him again, well, what then? Are you Elijah? So the old prophecy was that Elijah um, had, had gone into heaven, that he would come back and prepare the way for the Lord. And they connected the dots. You're acting a lot like what we thought Elijah would be like. Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist says, nope, I'm not him. Well, are you the prophet then? There would, the idea was that another prophet were, would to come. Um, after the 400 years of silence, a new prophet were, would come and declare the way of the Lord. And he said, no. So again, most people, like with social skills, are engaging in conversation. Well, who are you? Well, you know, I, I was born here, and then I was raised in this area, and then now, now this is my job, and this is my wife, and I have three kids. And, but John the Baptist, they're like, who are you? I'm not the Messiah. Great. Uh, let me ask again, who, who are you? Well, I'm not. Are you Elijah? Nope, not him. But the prophet? Nope, also not him. Great. We've gotten nowhere. I know three things you're not, and zero things you are. This is wonderful. So they ask in verse 22, well, who are you? You see, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You haven't told us anything about yourself. And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Uh, the translation gets a little bit lost here. The idea is that I'm one of the voices that cry out in the wilderness. So again, okay. Great, uh, you're one of these voices. You're a voice of one person crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then he says, as the prophet Isaiah said, which um, they should all know. Levites should know that. Priests would know that. The Pharisees would have known that. Then John says they had been sent from the Pharisees. Verse 25, well, they asked him, okay, so then why are you baptizing people? John had been baptizing people in the baptism of repentance. They wanted their sins to be washed away. He was proclaiming that a Messiah was coming. People were gravitating towards him. In fact, he had his own disciples. He had his own followers. And 
the Levites and priests and Pharisees don't like what he's doing to their system. And they say, okay, but then why are you doing this? This, isn't, this shouldn't happen here. If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, what are you doing? And John answered them, well, I baptize with water. Duh, isn't that how everyone, like, yes, great. But among you in the crowd stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? And John the Baptist keeps saying, it's, I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus. Who are you? Oh I, oh, I just used this water, but there's a Messiah among you. And he refers to himself as someone who's not even worthy to untie the strap of this man's sandals. Now, it would have been demeaning enough to be someone who washes feet. And John the Baptist is saying, I can't even be the one who takes the shoe off before that person washes feet. I, I have no business being around this man. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Uh, the Jordan is the river the Israelites crossed to go from the wilderness into the promised land. And there's this little area, and on, on probably the east side of the Jordan is what's called Bethany, or the Bethany by the Jordan. And this is where he is. This is where he's baptizing people. Again, remember I told you, John is trying to, he's trying to take the New Testament and lay it on top of the Old Testament. So he's talked about Jesus being there in the beginning. He's talked about him as tabernacling. And now he's gonna refer to him as the one who sets his people free. He's at the Jordan. So then, what we learn is that at some point, uh, John the Baptist had actually met Jesus. He had baptized him in Matthew chapter three. You can go read it. He baptizes Jesus. Uh, the heavens split open. Spirit of God descends. And there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So this must have happened. Uh, Matthew tells us next week, Greg's gonna teach, to, teach us from Matthew chapter four that Jesus gets baptized and he's declared by God as the son of God. And then immediately he's taken into the wilderness. One commentator says that with his hair still wet from baptism, he finds himself in the wilderness. So he's there for 40 days or so. So many commentators believe this would have been after that temptation of Jesus. So what we just read through verse 28 is, is on one day, Jesus is probably in the crowd watching everything happening. John the Baptist now knows who he is because he has baptized him. So then look at verse 29. So the next day, after the conversation, after the interview uh, with the Levites and the priests, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. People all around him. And he said, behold the Lamb of God. If you write in your Bibles, which I, I, I suggest you can, um, circle, underline, highlight this word, behold the Lamb of God. I told you, John picks and chooses words that carry a, a weight or a significance. They have layers to them. They have substance to them. Uh, the Greek word that he uses here is not the word just to perceive with your eyes. He doesn't use the word like to see. doesn't use the word to notice or to recognize. He uses this word and uses it in such a tense that it's a command. It's an imperative. He is commanding the people around him, behold the Lamb of God. This word behold means that you would fix your gaze upon. But it's not just a visual gaze, it's mental. Uh, it's to fix your attention upon something, to turn from what you were focusing on or even what you weren't focusing on and direct your attention towards something else. Behold him or beholding. Like be literally holding on 
to him. The Bible will use this in a sense of mental apprehension as opposed to visual apprehension. Have you ever left your house on like a Monday morning and then pulled into your workplace, your office, your school, and you're not quite sure how you got there, but you got there safely, and for some reason you're holding a Dunkin' Donuts coffee in your hand? Has that ever happened to you? So like visually, uh, you, you were driving, you saw um, obstacles, you saw places, red lights and green lights, you knew that you could swing into Dunkin' because the line was short, you could get a coffee, or, but yet you weren't comprehending, you weren't apprehending mentally what was going on. Has that ever happened to anybody? Like, we can go through life that way, can't we? We can go through life just going about our business, visually seeing things, but our mind, like we're not actually aware of what's happening. For many of us, that's what Jesus is to us. We see him, we hear Uh, We arrive at certain places not necessarily knowing how, but I I just wonder how many of us have actually mentally comprehended Jesus, that we're beholding him. So John says, behold, then he refers to him as the Lamb of God. Doesn't refer to him as the King of Kings, doesn't call him the Messiah, doesn't call him the Savior of the world. He calls him the Lamb of God, which takes us back to Old Testament practices of sacrificial lambs, in which the priests would have sacrificed a lamb. They would have figuratively placed the sins of a person or a family or a nation on this lamb, and then they would have killed the lamb, and the blood of the lamb would have, would have run. And that was to take away the sin of that person or that family or that nation for such a period of time. John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the lamb of God. He is taking the place, but he says he takes away the sin, singular sin, of the world. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Remember, he was at creation. Verse 31, I myself did not know him. I did not comprehend who he was, even though they're related. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I came and I'm, I'm just doing my thing. I'm just using water to baptize people And what I know is the purpose of me doing this little thing was that I would point people to the Messiah. 32, John, John the Baptist, bore witness. I saw, when I baptized him 40 days ago, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. Again, he's gonna say, I didn't really know who he was. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, I had a whole idea, a whole sermon, two-thirds of the way written of what I was gonna teach this morning based on this idea of of baptism. Uh, Then the week happens, and it's like, the Lord's like, no, 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 you, you can't avoid this. You're gonna have to teach in context of what's happening. I was like, no, I don't want to, because then it's opinions, and then people get mad, and just, let me just teach theology, and then people can just learn. He's like, no, 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 you're going to have to pastor today. I was like, no, I don't, okay, so here we are, whole other sermon. Verse 34, John said, I have seen and I have borne witness, this is the Son of God. Okay, so notice John the Baptist's language. He tells the people, behold, fix your gaze, fix your attention, fix your minds. Don't sleepwalk through this. Don't miss what's happening. Remember, the day before, hey, he's in your midst and you're missing him. The next day, he comes walking to the Jordan River and John says, there he is. Behold, turn and behold. So from Genesis chapter three, from the beginning of creation with the enemy, the enemy's tactic, here's what he does first and foremost. First and foremost, the enemy's key tactic is to keep us from beholding Jesus. 
That's what he does. He wants to distract us from Jesus and focus us on other things. You can read it later. Genesis chapter three, the way he gets Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that he, makes every, he tells her that everything is beautiful and delightful to the eyes. It's the same tactic the enemy uses on us. He's kept us from beholding Jesus by making us behold other things. And I think he's fine with us looking at Jesus or glancing at Jesus. But the moment we begin to behold Jesus, the enemy has a problem. So for many of us, here's what's been revealed to us over the past year and a half. We've been beholding other things and the enemy is just fine with it. I think he's even fine if you behold Jesus as a great teacher, or you behold Jesus as an example of a way to live your life, or you behold Jesus as the first to do something. He's not okay with you beholding Jesus as the Lamb of God. And yet, that's the command, that's the imperative. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the question for us this morning um, is not, are you beholding? The question is, what are you beholding? What is it that we are beholding? What is it that we are beholding? Because here's the truth for us. We become what we behold. Whatever we fix our attention on, whatever we fix our gaze upon, we become that. And it doesn't happen overnight. Like it happens over a period of time. It happens over maybe like a year or a year and a month. And then you wake up one day and realize, I don't, how did I get here? Because I thought, like, I was gazing, I was glancing at Jesus. I was looking at Jesus. I was reading my Bible. I was singing worship songs. I was, but were you beholding him? Because we become whatever it is that we are beholding. In other words, what we become, what we behold becomes the filter by which we live our lives. How many of you have ever watched Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines? Everybody, have you ever heard of that show? I think it's like a new underground thing. So what happened, like, right, for a number of years, um, middle-aged women and their husbands became obsessed with uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, right? So what we began to behold was um, farmhouses and industrial farmhouses. We began to, uh, to behold white walls and we beheld shiplap and we worshiped at the throne of shiplap and everything was fixer-upper. Then everything for us became an opportunity, right? We all thought we could fix up a house. And so we had no construction skill, no idea what to do, but we were on Zillow all day long looking for fixer-uppers because we're gonna move out of this new house we're in that just has no character and we're gonna fix up a house that has character, right? So we're gonna tear off walls, we're gonna rip up carpet and tile and we're gonna find brand, like from historic wood floors. That's what we're gonna find in every house we ever go to. So, right, so then that becomes, you're beholding that and then that influences the way you see your house because your house that you loved six months ago, now you can't believe you live there. Like, ugh, who would ever live in this house? It has, it has no character or all these things are run down and I just, there's no texture. I need some textiles in here. Where's my, where's my seagrass from hanging, coming out of from milk jug? I need this to really feel like I'm at home. Make an oasis for me. I'm sorry, it's personal. So, um, but as we behold that, right, that becomes the filter. And so now it influences, you don't feel good enough about your house, or now you want to become something because of what you've just seen. So now when you start looking for a house, 
Um, it either has to look like Chip and Jojo built that house from their own bare hands and sacrificed their life for you, or it has to look like a fixer-upper that you're gonna go fix. Like, no longer can you just live in a house. It's the same way when you go, uh, you have to look for a new car, right? Whatever you've beheld as the car, nothing else will ever add up to. It becomes the filter by which we live our lives. It happens in, in dating, it happens in marriage, because you watch This Is Us, and so now Jack became the filter by which you saw your husband. And then your husband never measured up. What we behold becomes the filter by which we live our lives. So again, we've got these characters, right? So let's just look. What have they beheld and what has that turned them into? Priests, Levites, and Pharisees. Well, they were people who, they beheld tradition. They beheld their heritage. They beheld their reputation and even their nationalism. And before you get offended, please, this is what they do. They have beheld Israel over the God of Israel. One commentator says that the Pharisees proved fanatical in their loyalty to the ancient practices and were extremely nationalistic. They boasted of and trusted in their being the seed of Abraham. So because they were so focused on tradition and ritual and reputation and nationalism, these people who were given the secret, who were, who were told the Messiah is coming, these people, he was in their midst. He was among them, and they completely missed him. Did they know? Like, could they have glanced at Jesus? Absolutely. Did they know the word of God? Absolutely. And yet, because they were beholding something else, they missed Jesus. And then you've got John the baptizer who beheld Jesus. He says, I don't, I didn't know him. I didn't exactly know who he was. And yet, so what's different about him? Well, the Pharisees sent everybody, send the Levites and the priest and say, hey, go figure this out. He's disrupting our reputation. He's disrupting our rituals. He's disrupting our tradition. He's messing with our nationalism. Go mess with him. Go figure out what's going on. And they come to John the baptizer and John the baptizer, who are you? And all he can say is, I know I'm not Jesus. I know I'm not Jesus. Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? Not, no, I'm not that. I don't think I'm that either. All he can talk about is Jesus. Like he's beheld Jesus so much that that has framed how he sees himself. And he says, oh, I'm just a water guy. There's a Holy Spirit guy coming. I'm, I'm kind of just a water guy. I'm preparing the way of the Lord. He says, I mean, I, I saw this. I know who, I, I saw this happen. So the question for us this morning is, what are you beholding? What are you beholding? Now listen, I know you're at church on a Sunday morning and you've, um, you've only listened to Casting Crowns this week, but my question for you is, what are you beholding? What have you fixed your attention on and your gaze upon? If I'm being honest with you this morning, I've had a rough week beholding Jesus. Anybody else had a rough week this morning beholding Jesus? Yeah. Because the enemy has done a really good job for me of distracting me from Jesus to everything else going on in the world. So let's just ask a few questions. What have your conversations been about? If you wanna know what you're beholding, look at John and look at the priests and the Levites. What are your conversations about? Because John the baptizer, his conversations are about Jesus. You know what my conversations have been about this past week? Virtual school, COVID, 
and the Capitol building. Like I'm confessing to you. I don't know that I've talked much about Jesus this week with my wife or my kids or my friends. I haven't beheld him this week. The enemy has gotten to me in ways that he's taken my gaze and my mental uh, affection off of Jesus and he's placed it other places. And I, I've been consumed with some of these things. All right, secondly, what, what controls your emotions? Circumstances? People? Politicians? Social media? What is it that is controlling your emotions? What are your conversations about? What's controlling your emotions? And finally, um, what do you think about when you lay your head on your pillow at night and then what's the first thing you think about when you wake up? Like in the raw, guttural flesh, immediately you're thinking of something. What is it? It's evidence for us about where we have been beholding and fixing our gaze. So listen, I, just, I wanna share a few things and then walk us through some practicality. I think we should be aware of COVID, but we need to behold Jesus. I think we should belong to a church and belong to a country and belong to a political party, but we need to behold Jesus. You can glance at your sin, but you need to fix your gaze upon Jesus. You can glance at your wife or your husband, but fix your gaze upon Jesus. You can glance at your kids, but gaze upon Jesus. We can be leery or we can be excited about virtual education, but we have to behold Jesus. Problem for us is we've been people who are beholding COVID. We've beheld our country, we've beheld a political party, we've beheld a politician, we've beheld a political stance, we've beheld our kids, we've beheld our spouses, we've beheld our church, we've beheld leaders, and in the meantime, we have lost who we are. What you behold, you become. Ultimately, this comes down to identity. And scripture is clear in these ways. So John, this very author in John chapter 15 uses the words of Jesus and Jesus would say that I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, if you dwell with me, if you behold, if you fix your gaze upon me, you will bear much fruit. Later, Paul would say in Galatians chapter five, he would talk about fruit, the fruit of the spirit. He said that when we spend time with him, we bear much fruit. So listen, I'm gonna talk about the fruit of the spirit. Please don't hear me wrong on this. I'm not saying we need to leave here and work on the fruit of the Spirit. You don't have, you don't. You don't work on producing fruit. You just stay in the vine and you produce fruit. You become what you behold. We become what we behold. So look at this, Galatians chapter five, verse 22. Paul's gonna tell us that this is the fruit of the Spirit. This word fruit is singular. So it's not nine different fruits that you can have like eight out of nine. Well, I'm pretty good, I got eight out of nine. No, no, it's one fruit that has these characteristics. The fruit of the spirit of abiding in divine, of beholding Jesus is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How are you doing, church? Like how, how have we done this week with bearing fruit in keeping with the spirit? How, how have we done? Has this week been a week of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Has that been that for you this week? It has not been for me. 
Because in beholding other things, I have become that. So rather than being a person of, of love and patience, I've become a person of frustration and impatience. These are, um, it's like when the check engine light comes on in your car. When this begins to flash, there's something wrong. And the response isn't, well, I gotta be more loving. No, 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 the response is to behold Jesus. Well, I, just, I gotta be more kind. No, 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 behold Jesus. So a few places where this shows up, um, based on your social media feed, how are you doing with the fruit of the Spirit? I love you. We're not doing well. The things that, that we are posting, how, how is that going for you? Conversations, how is that going for you? How are all these things going for you? One of the ways that I like to couch it to make myself feel more spiritual is I like to say I'm doing research. Like, no, I'm not, I'm not focused on COVID. I'm just doing research so I know the numbers. <laughs> no. Um, no, I'm not... I don't feel that way politically. I'm just doing some research. No, uh -uh, I'm beholding those things. I have fixed my gaze upon those kinds of things. Is there love and joy and peace? One of the greatest check engine lights that God has given us as parents is our children. One of the ways that I know I'm not beholding Jesus is that I'm a jerk to my kids. I'm short with them. I don't have time for them. I'd rather be doing other things. I don't I want to instruct them. I'm impatient with them. You know how I know I'm not beholding Jesus? My kids or my wife. I'm not loving them. I'm not, there's no joy in my home. There's no joy in my heart. There's not peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We've got these check engine lights. Pay attention. We need to pay attention because again, Becoming what we behold doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a long period of time. And you're gonna wake up one day and realize, how did I become this person? Well, it's because your gaze has slowly shifted and you're no longer gazing at Jesus. You're just glancing. Particularly when it fits your agenda, then you're gonna glance harder. So pay attention. So then the question is, what, what, what do we do? Once we, know, once we know that our gaze has been exposed, what do we do? The author of Hebrews is gonna give us a few things and I wanna walk us through this this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he references back to Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the hall of faith. People who are so far from perfect, they're not perfect people. And yet somehow God would call them faithful. We have this great cloud of witnesses who have proved to us to keep on going. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The author of Hebrews distinguishes between weight and sin, but he says to lay them both aside. We have this really bad um, habit, particularly in church, but really in America, of, of uh, making everything so polarizing. There are things for us that may not be sinful that are actually keeping us from running the race God has for us. They're not bad things, and in many ways they are good things but they are weights that are keeping us from moving forward. So the Bible then puts into place a practice called fasting. You wanna know why fasting exists? That we would lay aside food that we might fix our gaze back upon Jesus, the one who provides and sustains us. So listen, our, 
are there weights in your life that are holding you back? You can recognize something like that because it's a thing that stirs up the anti-fruits of the Spirit in you. Are there things that are stirring up anxiety and frustration and um, uh, you want to fight and quarrel? Lust, are there things stirring those things up in them? That's a weight for you. So here are examples of some things I think we probably need to consider fasting from. Uh, First thing is social media. Maybe it's time that we consider a fast from social media. And I'm not even saying you're saying things that are wrong. Here's, what, here's why I can't do social media. It creates this hum of agitation underneath everything in my life. I, don't, I didn't even post much when I was on it, but I just, I like to um, research. And so therefore, like, it created this, well, they have this and I, I should have that and I should be this and we should and I can't believe that person. I thought differently of that person until they posted that thing and I just, I can't anymore. I can't. We have to lay aside weights that keep us from running the race. Social media, maybe it's talk radio. Maybe, uh, maybe it is the research you're doing and at the risk of sounding like a late 80s youth pastor. Maybe it's the music you're listening to. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm just, I'm getting old and I like documentaries like Daryl said and maybe it's just part of my thing but like, students, I love you but there's some music for you that isn't helping. It's not helping. It's killing your heart. Grown-ups, we're not that different. We just call it classic rock. Or 90s hip-hop, whatever. So maybe, what are the things, right? What are things that we need to lay aside because, man, they're entangling us. They're keeping us from running the race. What kind of media do you need to remove yourself from? TV shows, movies. And again, I'm, I'm not the guy. I'm not that guy going to say, all media is bad. You should never watch movies. No, I think there's some great lessons in some ways that you actually see the heart of God in some things. But there comes a season in which you realize, ah, man, something's wrong with my engine. Let's get it figured out. Let's get it figured out. What weights can you lay aside this week? And there's sin, which clings so closely. Now, uh, you don't fast from sin. You kill sin. What sins have risen up? in you, that you have to kill. Kill sin before it kills you. Sin that clings so closely. Then he says, let us run with endurance. If we're gonna have endurance, we can't be carrying extra weight. The race that is set before us, verse two, looking to Jesus. That sounds familiar. Beholding Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the author and finisher, the beginning and ending of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, taking us back to verse one, despising its shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the victor. You know who's not seated on the right hand of God? Anyone else. It's Jesus. Therefore, go down to verse 12. Therefore, the author says, what are we gonna do? Well, you gotta lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. We're gonna need some rehab. We're gonna need some physical rehab. We've gotta strengthen our weak knees. We've gotta prepare. So how do you strengthen the weak knees of your faith? You read the Bible. What's amazing is uh, when you begin fasting from things, you'll realize how much time you actually do have to read the word of God. And I know it's not sexy and I don't have the right words to make it sound cool. Just, we, we gotta be people who read the Bible. We read the Bible, we worship. 
It's a weapon against the enemy. We worship. I don't mean we sing songs. I don't mean we stand when we're supposed to and sit when we're supposed to. I mean we worship. We make Jesus preeminent, and I think we have to pray. I know we have to pray. You wanna prepare, strengthen your weak knees? You gotta be people of prayer. So here's what we've done. Um, we've created a schedule for you. you. You can pray tonight at five o'clock. How's that work? Does that work for you? Five o'clock, we're gonna gather to pray. And there can be 10 of us and we're gonna pray just as hard. But my fear is that you're gonna miss out. And in doing so, you're gonna behold an NFL playoff game. You're gonna behold dinner with somebody. You're gonna behold something and you're gonna completely miss Jesus. So wherever you are, we've gotta be people of prayer. It's the only weapon that we have. Then verse 13 says, make straight paths for your feet. So the call is to strengthen our weak knees, lift our drooping hands, and then we've gotta make paths straight for your feet. Why? So that what is lame, your weak knees, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So here's the thing that I've learned in my life. Um, the path isn't waiting for us. Like, we're not, we're not stopping. The path of life is continuing to be walked on. We don't get to take a break. We don't get to time out like Zach Morris and Saved by the Bell. It's always going. It's always going. So the question for me and for you is, what's on your path? The other truth is our knees are weak. And the only way to strengthen knees is to walk on them. But you start walking on your weak knees in a house full of Legos and kids' toys, you'll have worse problems than when you began with your weak knees. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Hey, you want to strengthen your knees? We're going to have to walk. But let's clear the path first, clear the clutter. So church, what clutter is in your path? We gotta get rid of it. If we wanna endure, if we wanna be strong, if we wanna endure what's ahead of us, we gotta build up the strength in our knees and it's not gonna happen through a cluttered path. So what can you clear out of your path? So what do we do? Well, we fast. We kill sin. And we clear the clutter. clutter. What clutter is in your path today? Let me just, I, just feel the burden. I want to speak to parents here for a second. I know sometimes weeks like this happen and you're fearful for your kids, right? And you're afraid of what they're going to grow up in and what they're going to face and what they're going to learn and all those types of things. Here's what I would say to you in that. God knew what he was doing when he placed you at this time in history. And he has prepared you to parent your kids in this culture. Don't give it to somebody else. You parent your kids and you make babies and you raise up an army of light to push back darkness. Don't be afraid. God's equipped you. He's given you what you need. Church, us, Sharon Church, we've been equipped for such a time as this. He's prepared us for this. And so we're gonna have to do the work of strengthening our knees. If we're gonna walk this path, we gotta strengthen our knees. We gotta kill sin We've got to put aside every weight that so easily entangles and we fix our eyes on Jesus. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. This morning, God has made clear to us where our eyes need to be. And yet, um, the enemy's expertise is in distraction and so we've already been distracted this morning, haven't we? 
You've been distracted by your political opinions, by your beliefs, by what you think happened or didn't happen, and should you wear this and should you not wear this, and what are the actual numbers of COVID, and what is this guy thinking? He's too young to be making these statements. I know what he thinks because he's probably liberal. Listen, you, you don't get to be distracted by that. We're gonna fix our eyes on Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just by means of confession this morning, who would say, again, who would say, you'd raise your hand, just an honest confession and say, I've been beholding things besides Jesus this week. Would you raise your hand? It's, it's cleansing to confess this. I am with you. Goodness, I'm with you. You know what, though, for you and for me, there's grace upon grace. And we can now begin, we can behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Anybody this morning who the Spirit has moved in your heart that you, you weren't following Jesus. You weren't, you're not a Christian, but you want to be. You want to give your life to Jesus who reigns, our God reigns. Anybody this morning could say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but I want to be. I, I want to follow him. Let me pray over us, church, and then I'll dismiss us. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the way that you are always on time don't have to search for what it is that you're trying to say to me. It's just, it's right there. So God, I thank you that um, you do reign uh, in our world and uh, God, more importantly, in our hearts. So for those of us this morning who are under the weight of conviction of the spirit that we have been beholding things that aren't you and it's revealed itself through the way that we're treating people, through the things that we're saying, through the hum of frustration and anxiety, um, God, would you draw us back to you? Would you clear the clutter of our minds that we might fix our gaze upon you this morning? Give us the courage and strength and the spirit to do what we need to do, to lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangle, that we would clear the clutter on the path before us, that we might walk towards health. Uh, we trust you. We trust that you are who you say you are. Uh, may this church, may we be marked as a people who just behold Jesus. Well, who are you? I'm not Jesus. Well, what do you do? I just, I use what's in front of me and I show people Jesus. May that be true of us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. If you'll stand, I'll give us um, a quick benediction. If you have any questions about following Jesus or about our church or even about our schedule or anything, you can meet Jeff over here in the gathering place. If you just need to talk, you need to pray, you can do that. The altar is open as well. Sometimes if you need to come and, and pray there, I encourage you to do that. I want to remind you about prayer night tonight at five o'clock. Our Wednesday nights are back this week as well. Um, just encourage you to be a part of that. And church, may you go, um, not as a people who are trying to be better, but people who behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Go in grace, church. You are dismissed. We love you.